Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. Each podcast I'll answer your questions about the Old Testament, point you to great books and blogs, highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures and walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. I really want to get straight into the passage I want to study with you today, that's 2 Samuel 23, but let me just pause a moment and recommend a couple of resources to you. The first is the book, Beginning at Moses, by my colleague at Puritan Seminary, Michael Barrett. He wrote this many years ago, but it's a wonderful introduction to this whole subject of finding Christ in the Old Testament. You'll get it on Amazon, Beginning at Moses. Second, let me suggest you look up a couple of articles at the Aquila Report on preaching David and Goliath with balance. I'll put links to that below the podcast on my blog, but if you search Google, I'm sure sure you'll find the two articles. They're entitled Preaching David and Goliath with Balance. You'll find them on the Aquila Report. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in these two articles, but I want you to read the blog post critically and see if there's anything you're uncomfortable with. And I'll come back to them next week, highlight what I liked, as well as mention a reservation or two. Now last week we looked at the inauguration of the covenant with David. And this week we want to look at how David applied that covenant when he was on his deathbed. Deathbeds are revealing places, aren't they? A person's last words are often significant, weighty and revealing. King David's last words were no different having appointed Solomon as his successor, and having handed over all the resources he had prepared for the temple building, David settled down to review his life and look ahead towards eternity. And what was central to his thoughts and words at that time? It was the covenant God had made with him many years before. To put it briefly and bluntly, he concluded that his own promises to God were shattered and broken. But God's promises to him remain sure and blessed. Let's look at these two main themes here. First, my promises are shattered. Chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 5. David really did two things here. He he pondered his, his great privileges and opportunities. And then he remembered his great failures. We see his great privileges in verses 1 through 3. First of all, he notes how he was raised from very humble beginnings. As he reviewed his life, David reminded himself of his original family and position and how God raised him up. He went back to his lowly roots and described himself as David, the son of Jesse. He wasn't from a royal or noble line. He was the son of a very humble Bethlehemite shepherd. But from these Very small beginnings, he says, I was raised up on high. David claims no credit for this elevation. He didn't raise himself up, but he was raised up by God from village obscurity to international prominence. Second, he says, I was anointed by the God of Jacob. David ascribed any success he had to the anointing of God. God anointed him both physically and spiritually, both with oil and with the Holy Spirit, to be a civil and spiritual leader, a shepherd of the nation of Israel and of the church of God. And then third he says, 
I was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my tongue. God not only spoke to him, but through him, so that he was known as, verse 1 says, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. So here we read how God, from lowly and significant Bethlehemite origins, raised David to be the inspired poet of Israel's praise. So he says, I've had great privileges. Then he says, I've had great opportunity. David was given the great opportunity to rule over God's chosen people. And as with all opportunity, there came responsibility. He described how God instructed him as to how he should fulfill his opportunity and responsibility. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Verses 3 and following. Now here, David recalled the, the divine demand that he was to deal justly with all his subjects. He was to rule in the fear of God. That is, he was to remember that all power was given to him from God for the glory of God and that he would eventually be accountable to God for it. Moreover, if he ruled justly, this would promote the fear of God, an Old Testament expression for faith, He'd promote that fear of God among his subjects. If he did this, then God promised that his reign would be like a beautiful sunrise on a cloudless morning. Verse 4, he shall be like the light of the morning, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Professor Richard Pratt put it, the benefits of a righteous rule are enlightenment, refreshment, and fruitfulness. So he says, I've had, I've had great privileges and I've had great opportunity. But then he says in verse 5, I've been a great failure. In the King James Version and the New King James Version, it's translated here, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. The NIV and some other modern translations puts it this way. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant? If you're listening closely, you'll be concluding, hey, these translations say completely opposite things. The NIV translation suggests that the basis of David's interest in God's everlasting covenant of grace was that his house was as it should be. Now, the Hebrew can be translated that way. However, it doesn't fit the context of David's personal and family failings. Neither does it fit the whole tenor of covenant theology, which is that God graciously covenants to save sinners despite their sins, not because of their merits. David's not saying, is not my house right with God? He's made with me an everlasting covenant, therefore. No, he's saying, as the AV and New King James Version puts it, although my house be not so with God, 
it can be translated that way as well. He's saying, having reviewed my privileges, my responsibilities, my opportunities, my conclusion is, I failed miserably. My house is not so with God. Despite all God had done for him, given to him and commanded him, David saw he'd failed to use his privileges, fulfill his responsibilities and take his opportunities. In effect, he was saying, verses 1 to 4 describe what I should have been, but I don't fit this description. I had great hopes for myself and for my house, but all these hopes have been dashed. I've been unjust in my dealings with Uriah and others. I didn't fear God, taking many wives, especially in taking Bathsheba. My reign's been like a cloudy, stormy night and like withering grass in a desert land. The contrast between what should have been and what was was painted by Jimson, Fawcett and Brown in their commentary as follows. They say, David's kingdom was unlike the clear, brilliant dawn of an eastern day, but was overcast by many black and threatening clouds. Neither he nor his family had been like the tender grass springing up from the ground and flourishing by the united influences of the sun and rain, but rather like the grass that withers and is prematurely cut down. David saw his family was in a mess. Amnon had defiled Tamar. Absalom had slain Amnon for his sin. Absalom was cut down in his rebellion. Now even Adonijah was plotting at his door. Further, David saw that most of this was his own fault. Had he been more faithful, he and his family in Israel would not have suffered as they had. David was basically saying, My house is diminished, distressed, disordered, and uncertain. However, although my house be not so with God. Despite my broken promises, multiple failures, personal disasters, crimes and calamities, reverses and revolutions, yet God has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. Verse 5. His failures to keep the terms of the covenant with David induce him to put his trust in the divine king of the covenant of grace signified and typified in the covenant of David. So he says, my promises are shattered. But God's promises are sure. Having surveyed all his own broken promises and shattered dreams, David turned to God's unbroken and unbreakable promises. And he has some beautiful things to say about these promises. First of all, they are spiritual promises. It's actually John Owen's view that perhaps David had at times in the past taken too carnal and temporal a view of the promises contained in the covenant with David, and that it took all the years of disappointment and disaster to make him see the futility of putting his hopes in a worldly kingdom based around his own flesh and blood. So here, at the end of his life, he turned away from all that was fleshly and man-centred 
and found his hope in the spiritual promises of a spiritual king and a spiritual kingdom. In other words, David had focused too much on the external form of the covenant with David. But here, as other times in his life, he saw through the form to the substance, to the covenant of grace. He peeled away the skin to find the fruit. He discarded the husk and laid hold on the kernel. He used the type to get to the antitype, the prophecy to get to the fulfilment. He got past the letter of the covenant with David and absorbed the spirit of the covenant of grace. That's not to deny that God's covenant with David brought many blessings to Israel. Indeed, some of these blessings were not only temporal and physical, but spiritual. The stable Davidic dynasty expanded and secured the borders of the promised land, and the population multiplied and flourished in this environment. So long as the kings ruled in righteousness, the people enjoyed protection, prosperity, and the presence of God. However, none of these temporal or spiritual blessings could save David or Israel to be saved. They needed more than the promises of the covenant with David. They needed the promises of the covenant of grace, which were signified in the covenant with David. They needed more than the external administration of the covenant of grace. They needed the inward appropriation of the covenant of grace. The Christ-centered fulfillment of the covenant with David is brought out by Professor Richard Pratt. He said, Christ fulfills all the hopes of the Davidic family. He brings the blessings of God's kingdom to all those who serve him faithfully. David and his sons brought outpourings of tremendous benefits for God's people, but those Old Testament blessings fell short of the dignity for which we were designed. Christ alone brings full kingdom blessings. He is the last step in the restoration of God's image. So, these were spiritual promises. Secondly, they were structured promises. David says, He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things. That word ordered here means that things are placed in the right relation to each other to work well together and achieve the desired end. The Davidic promises pointed believers towards the promises of the covenant of grace. Promises which were well suited to promote the glory of God, the honour of Christ, the salvation of sinners and the holiness of believers. Nothing was overlooked or omitted. It was well organised in all things. It's great things and it's little things. Every wheel and every cog of every wheel was in the right position to secure the desired end. Ordered in all things. Thirdly, these were sure promises. None of our earthly promises are sure, but every promise of heaven is sure. God's faithfulness is here contrasted with David's failures as a king, as a father, as a husband, and as a believer. David's physical house, family, and dynasty were dysfunctional and uncertain. God's promises were ordered in all things and sure. That's why Isaiah calls them the sure mercies of David. In Isaiah 55 verse 3. The certainty of the promises is emphasised in the repeated emphasis on foreverness in 2 Samuel 7 where the covenant's inaugurated. And here, yet he has made with me an 
everlasting covenant. David's hope was not in his feeble, broken, temporary promises to God, but in God's solid, unbroken and eternal promises to him. Looking back to 2 Samuel 7, you'll remember how David planned to build God a house, but God said, no, I'll build you a house or dynasty. There was no negotiation, no discussion, no consensus. God was promising that he would eventually establish a son of David as a king who would set up an everlasting kingdom of holiness. With the benefit of the New Testament, we can safely identify this person as Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son. He was raised by God from village obscurity to international prominence. He was anointed by the God of Jacob. Though the the descending dove was the external symbol, his anointing was inward with the oil of the Holy Spirit and that without measure. To be a spiritual shepherd and king of spiritual Israel. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak such gracious and convincing words of truth that his hearers were left astonished and dumbfounded. He is the just one who rules in the fear of God. He is the beautiful morning dawn after the storm. He warms the cold air of the soul and makes the birds to sing joyfully within. He is the morning without clouds. He drives away the clouds of sin and of Sinai. He's the refreshing shower that falls on parched souls and brings forth fertility and fruitfulness. Psalm 72 verse 6 and 16. He is everlasting. He existed before David and will continue long after David. That the covenant of David revealed the Messiah was also understood by Old Testament saints, apart from David. Later, when the earthly Davidic kingdom was crumbling all around them, Israel's prophets anticipated another who would occupy David's throne forever, who would rule in righteousness who would be in a unique father-son relationship with God, who would rule the the whole world in righteousness. Look, for example, at Isaiah 11.1, Jeremiah 23.5-6, Zechariah 3.8, Zechariah 6.12, numerous verses in Ezekiel. This hope of the Old Testament prophets would culminate ultimately in the coming of Jesus the Christ. As Luke chapter 132-33 says, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David. Revelation 22.16 wraps it all up. In this last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root of David. I am the root and offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. Look at Acts 2, 30-31, Acts 13, 22-23, Romans 1, 1-4, many, many verses showing that these sure promises were ultimately made sure and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So they were spiritual, they were structured, they were sure. Fourthly, they were saving. David saw his salvation in these promises. He said of them, this is all my salvation. His hope of salvation was invested wholly in the greater king of the covenant of grace revealed in and through the covenant with David. David even seemed to have had insight into the Saviour's painful route to this kingship, Psalm 22 and 69. Again, 
With the benefit of New Testament hindsight, we can, we can certainly see references to the necessity of Christ's suffering in 2 Samuel 7. Just as we can see the necessity of Christ's suffering in the bruised heel of Genesis 3, the storm before the rainbow, the cuttings and sacrifice of the ceremonial system. Second Samuel 7.14, God said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him with the sons of men, with the stripes of the children of men. This was certainly fulfilled in the lives of David and all his sons. For the greatest son of David, to save any of the lesser sons of David, he had to satisfy in himself all their obligations to the covenant and bear the punishment of their repeated covenant violations. The sins of David were imputed to Christ and as a consequence he experienced God's chastening of him through the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. O.P. Robertson puts it this way. It may be affirmed as emphatically true that David's covenant hinged conditionally on the responsible fulfilment of covenant obligations by Jesus Christ, the seed of David. He satisfied in himself all the obligations of the covenant. Not only did he maintain perfectly every statute and ordinance of the Mosaic law as required of David, he also bore in himself the chastening judgments deserved by David's seed through their covenant violations. In Christ, the conditional and the certain aspects of the covenant meet in perfect harmony. In him, the Davidic covenant finds assured fulfilment. End quote. Though David perhaps didn't know everything, we do, about the significance of these promises. He knew enough to say of them, this is all my salvation. He recognised that nothing but this would save him, and that this alone would be sufficient to save him. David did nothing, and God did everything. David did the sinning, and God did the saving. Now, we might pause here. And consider how Isaiah's insight into the sufferings of Christ were heavily influenced by covenant theology. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah seems to pull together the various threads of the sufferings of Christ as prophesied in the covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses and David. By using language which reminds us of these covenants. He was bruised for our iniquities. Covenant with Adam. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, covenant with Noah. He was cut off out of the land of the living, covenant with Abraham, circumcision. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, covenant with Moses. He was wounded for our transgressions, law-breaking, covenant with Moses. With his stripes we are healed, covenant with David. And significantly, this great Isaianic prophecy of our suffering covenant surety climaxes with him reigning over an everlasting kingdom. These are saving promises. Fifthly, they are sufficient promises. David looked at these promises and said, not only they're all my salvation, but also they are all my desire. They were all David's heart wanted and needed. He had sorrow in his house, but he had confidence in the covenant of grace. And so he had satisfaction in his heart. Faith turned a thorn-filled pillow into a pillow of the softest downy feathers. David had barely begun to see even the beginning of the fulfilment of these promises. I said himself, when thinking of them, 
although he, that is, although God, make it not to grow. (laughs) He didn't even see the green shoots of fulfillment. He saw little signs of progress. However, the divine promise was sufficient for him to rest in with confidence on his deathbed. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, though he make it not to grow. John Owen sums this up perfectly. Under present distress and the saddest prospect of future troubles, it is the duty and wisdom and privilege of believers to betake themselves for relief and support unto the covenant of God. Thank you.